How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Rugby Player Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Benno. Now, before we jump into this most recent episode, I just want to say a quick thank you and shout out to everyone that has reached out over the last couple of weeks following the Grayson Hart episode. Um, Anyone that listened heard that Grayson was extremely open and honest about his experiences in his career. And because of that, it's um, opened the doors for a lot of other players to reach out and share their experiences as well. So it was amazing to hear the feedback from all of it. And and I hope that it encourages more players to do so moving forward. Off the back of that, Pure Sports CBD, which is the CBD company that Grayson has co-founded, are now offering 20% off on all items at their online store for the Rugby Player Pod listeners. So if you're a listener on this podcast and you're interested in Pure Sports CBD, like most of us rugby players are, Go to the store, you'll get a 20% off from this when you type in the Rugby Player Pod. That's the Rugby Player Pod, all lowercase, all together at checkout and you'll get your 20% discount off. So good luck, happy shopping with that and thanks again for Pure Sports CBD for helping us out. Love the products. Now, moving on, this episode, we are lucky enough to have Evan Olmsted um, from Bay Ritz over in the Pro D2 in France. This is our first guest that we've had on um, that's playing rugby in France at the moment, and it's honestly pretty amazing to hear his insight in terms of what French rugby is like at the moment, and particularly in the Pro D2 level. Um, we've all heard reports about it, but it's awesome to hear um, his experiences. Evans also uh, 25 caps for the Canadian international team. He's been to two World Cups with Canada side, born there originally, moved to Australia at a young age, and since then has travelled the world playing professional rugby. And some amazing stories come from this episode. So great to catch up with Evan, and I hope everyone enjoys the episode. Cheers. Have I got him? You've got me. How are you? Good, mate. How are you? Oh, excellent. Excellent. Mate, um, appreciate the time. Nine o'clock over there. Long day. Yeah, it's been a busy one. Um, we we lost our game on the weekend, and so I'm not sure if that had anything to do with it, but there was a surprise fitness session on today for the guys who didn't play. Um, yeah, just like French class, lots of bits and pieces, So, but we got it done. Yeah, right, mate. Um, that That's the first game of the season as well for you guys, isn't it? Second, yeah. Second. So we, we won our first game at home to Perpignan um, and then lost away to Montauban. So Nick Sturzica and Kamami um, over there, a couple of Aussies. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're, well, we're everywhere. Yeah, 100%. That's, can't, can't escape us, mate. So um, I, I want to I know, how's your time been in France? No, it's been good. I've been here oh, just under a year now. Um, really loving it. It's very different. It's very different to the to the rest of the rugby playing world. I mean, just like culturally, the rugby culture, the obviously the language, um, just the sort of the attitude of the people. And, you know, I think that definitely comes in to their rugby scene as well. It's just, um, yeah, people who know will be able to tell you it's just a different kettle of fish. Like, it's got a bit of everything to it, to be fair. There's like a lot of sort of jouet, sort of just throw the ball around, but they still have a, quite a set piece focus. There's some really random things that happen in games, especially in the Pro D2. Um, things that you just don't expect, you know, like there's a lot of, uh, you know, punching, hair pulling, that kind of thing that you kind of, you kind of just get used to that not really happening because of the, you know, 
the video refs everywhere and all that kind of stuff. And you know that if you do something silly like that, you're going to get suspended. Whereas here, it's not the case. So it is, it's pretty, it's pretty old school in that regards. And it takes a little bit of adjusting to. Okay. No, I, you're certainly not the first guy to um, talk about that stuff. And um, I'm so looking forward to chatting more and more about that um, throughout the podcast. But before we jump in, um, may I might just, what we do typically is, get you to introduce yourself, give us a quick background on your playing career and then we can sort of just like cruise through it all. And, and as I said, like love to touch on the French stuff where you're at to now, but obviously there's so much more to your career. So I'll throw over to you for a quick intro. Yep. So um, yeah, I started playing in Sydney, uh, Linfield Rugby Club. Um, but my, my old man was a rugby guy from back in Canada. He played for the Capuanos. So I started off playing Linfield Juniors, Gordon Juniors, um, and went to school at Knox. So that's where we would have uh, crossed paths a few times in our youth. Yep. Uh, then went Gordon, Colts, grade, um, left there to go to Parramatta, uh, did the whole you know semi-pro grind, uh, was in the Waratahs, like wider sort of training group for a while, uh, got a couple injuries, dropped off the radar, eventually threw my hat in the ring with the Canadian squad before the 2015 World Cup. So I did the provincial rugby on, on sort of to get my name out there in Canada and Canadian rugby circles because obviously I'd been in Australia. No one over there really knew who I was. So yep. did that 2015 World Cup, went to London Scottish as a medical joker. From there, signed to Newcastle Falcons in the premiership. Was there for two years, went to Auckland, might attend, did the Blues, pre-season as a medical joker as well back to newcastle 2019 world cup uh, and now at biritz and i'm here for the next few years at least yeah just signed yeah so i i came as a medical joker um after world cup one of their locks had had a season ending injury and then once i'd arrived like i you know i'd sort of i'd done this medical joker thing before and obviously i was a bit sort of um jaded by the whole by the rugby world in some respects because you know i'd done well but then not been able not been offered contracts for one reason or another you know there's like the english qualified rules that are in england and the visa rules that are over there as well which don't apply if you know you're a south african you're exempt but if you're a canadian or an australian like i am you know you're you're pretty much uh there's they're allowed like two per match squad so you know had so many conversations with clubs being like we rate you but we've got two wallabies and an all black. So we're already having to sit one of them out and we don't want four. So, you know, unlucky. Um, but yeah, to be fair in France, I feel like as you'll find with them, they wear their heart on their sleeve a lot more. So you go over there, you do well. And the club's like, right, you've done well by us now. We're going to do well by you. So, um, and that's kind of, so yeah, it's a bit different, but it's, you know, refreshing in some respects. Mate, hundred percent. Um, is this your your longest professional contract that you've just signed as well? Um, well, it will be once you add up the medical joker yeah. as well. It'll be the longest I've spent in one place, which I'm really excited about because yeah, you know the med- the travel the traveling is unbelievable. Like you make you make you know new coaches, new friends. Um, as you know from you know the rugby world, as you know you're over in New York now. You, you make you make new mates everywhere. You see a different part of the world, but. I've been sort of, I'm getting to the age where I'm looking for a little bit more stability. Um, you know, I want to, I've had my long-term partner, Melinda, she's been doing her lawyer thing in Australia, just waiting for the sort of a long-term gig. And uh, so now we can sort of start getting on with life and actually like live together rather than being, uh, you know, internet, internet boyfriend and girlfriend, which we have been for the last, you know, Mate, well, well done to her for sticking around. 
Oh, exactly. It's because she knows she's punching. <laughs> <laughs> Got that on record now too. Yeah, and it's in the public domain. There no, you no. go, mate. No, um, she's brilliant. That that's awesome. I want to um touch on the Canadian stuff first. Um, obviously going to two World Cups, but um, how did that originally come about? Did you have eligibility through your parents or? Family. Yep, through my parents, and I was born there. So I was yep. born in um, Vancouver, um, you know, proudly Canadian. But we we moved to Sydney when I was three years old. Yeah. So I, you know, when the twenty to the two thousand and three World Cup was in, you know, we, you know, my dad, he he, you know, very very Canadian. Um, he had some connections with a couple of the players who were playing. You know, he played with their old men. Yeah. So he, you know, we I got jerseys signed by the guys and we watched their games. We watched the Wallabies games too, obviously, but watched the Canada games and, you know, travelled around, followed them a bit. So it's sort of been sort of hooked into that team for a while just for, as a supporter. And then, yeah, so I pretty much at one point had to draw a line in the sand. You know, I... I'd seen guys who I'd played junior rugby with. They were making it in you know, super rugby and they were wallabies. And I knew that I could do just as well as they could, but just, you know, for one reason or another, didn't get the opportunity, you know, didn't get the rub of the green, wasn't big enough at the right time or injured at the wrong time. And so I said, right, at this point, if it doesn't work for me here, I'm going to go over there. And, and, the, and the line, the, the time came. So the line was crossed. So then I went full bore and got capped basically um, as soon as possible. And, and that was that. But, you know, definitely as, as growing up in Australia, you know, you dream of playing for the Wallabies. And I'm sure every, every kid wants to be a Wallaby, but, you know, just wasn't happening. And eventually you had to look at your career and know that, you know, you've only got a finite amount of years. And there's, there's been some Canadian guys, like the, the guy who I sort of looked up to the most was Jamie Cudmore. Yep. And he had a huge career in France, you know, made lots of money, played lots of great rugby, Heineken Cups, top 14s, all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's like, well, you know, it's not super rugby. It's not the Wallabies, what I sort of wanted to, but this is still pretty awesome. So, you know, and I want to play rugby. I want to play as the highest level I can play. So that was, uh, let's go. Let's go to Canada. Let's do it that way. And obviously, at that time, you know, aspirations to go to a Rugby World Cup as well. So the timing definitely influenced the decision, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that was it. So like, I, well, how old would I have been then? I was 23, 24. Yeah. So still young, but, you know, like not getting any younger. And I know like most guys in the sort of Super Rugby setup, it sort of at least had a game by their sort of 23rd, 24th birthday. A lot of, and, and, and there was guys, you know, I looked at guys like Scott Fardy, if I'm not mistaken, he didn't get capped until he was 28. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I could go down that road and maybe it will happen for me. And, you know, I back myself that I reckon it could. But then at the same time, it's like I'm giving up a World Cup you know, five years of professional rugby and he's had a pretty amazing career. Like he's still doing really good things at Leinster. Um, but, you know, I just was like, right, do I want to really roll the dice and put all my eggs in this basket? And if it doesn't work out, you know, I'm stuck behind a desk in an office job, which I'm going to do anyway after rugby, or do I just like, you know, right, take, take sort of the initiative, take it into my own control as much as possible, which as you know, in sport, nothing's really ever in your control, but you can take it in, um, in your own control as much as you can. So, and, and I love Canada and like, you know, the, some of the Canadians give me grief and call me a fake Canadian, but you know, I'm born Canadian. My sister is, my parents are, my grandparents are, I just speak with a different accent. So. Mate, call, um, call them out. Yeah. You've been to two yeah. 
Yeah, no, no. Well, a lot of those guys have been, a lot of those guys have been to two World Cups too, and these are some of my uh, closest friends. So I know they're just giving me grief, you know. But uh, it is, it is. They do, and they they make especially because of my accent, you know. Sure. You're a fake Canadian. I was like, all right, whatever, you know, (laughs) like. It is what it, I'm sure there's South Africans in our team or, you know, they're Canadian as well, but they got accents and Scottish guys. So there's a few, there's a few accents kicking around and, and they all get called fake Canadians, not just me. There you go, mate. What was it like um, coming into that environment for the first time? Um, obviously you didn't spend that much time with the full squad or, or in Canada prior to that. So was it a big transition for you? Yeah, it was huge. Um, just, I was actually really surprised by the the sort of professionalism. Like what I'd known at this point, I was with the Waratahs for you know the the summer basically. Like yeah. did all the training from November up until the first preseason games, and uh, had a great conversation with Michael Foley at one point where he's like, right, you know, um, I had a holiday booked which had been deferred, deferred. Long story short, he said, go on holidays this year because next year you you will not be going on holidays over summer. But then he got the sack. Yeah. Um, but with the Canadian team, it was yeah very professional. I didn't really know many of the players. Like I knew the guys who were my age who I'd done under twenties with, um, but I didn't really know that many of them. I knew their names obviously because I'd been watching, uh, and I was a firm outsider. I was unfit like compared to the rest of them, I was, uh, my strength was reasonable. I was pretty much as strong as everyone else, but my fitness was definitely lacking. Um, and just sort of my experience, like I'd been doing shoot shield, like mostly, and it's good quality, but you know, the amount, the amount of like set piece analysis that goes into it, or at least at my club, it wasn't nearly the same as an international team. And so even though Canada hasn't really performed that well, all their players were playing overseas in Europe, pretty much. The first team, like the starting team, was all European professionals. So I was really getting a crash course on what it meant on a week-to-week, like game-by-game basis to be a professional. And I was a massive outsider because the coaches had um, their favorites who they'd sort of invested in for the eight years, like two previous World Cup cycles. And here was this new kid turned up, um, you know, a bit fat, uh, not really fit, uh, good player. Like I was, I was a good player, but I was definitely, you know, behind the eight ball and they, you know, you, they'd look at me do like a, a Bronco test or, a, you know, we did the one mile run and I was like last place out of the, out of the back five forwards, you know, the second rows and back rows. And they're like, who's this guy? But then we'd play a game and I'd go well. So yeah, it was really, um, thanks to the scrum coach. He really went into bat for me. He was my under twenties coach and he was like, he was sort of, fighting my fight in the selections meetings and I managed to sneak in there as like basically like a 24th man slash on the bench and so yeah I got to the world cup which was my goal I got to play two games which was awesome obviously I would have loved to have started but to go from outside the squad completely you know like one example would be they before one of our pacific nations games against uh, Tonga the team did captain's run and the fitness coach sent me on a 5k run like in the Jesus. forest ar- around around the field so like what you know, as the game's playing oh as the captain's run's happening so oh, like the day before God. the game they're like right team's doing captain's run right you go like see that track follow that and meet me back here in half an hour i was just like so it was a bit of a, and uh yeah but i put in the work to be fair um and i think they, everyone saw that and I, I definitely got myself in good shape pretty quickly. And the SNC coach at the time, he was brilliant. Um, and he really sort of, yeah, he was harsh. He was harsh, but fair, you know, like 
he didn't give me anything I couldn't handle. Like he wasn't going to break me, but like he pushed me to the absolute limit of what I could do without getting injured. And yeah, I got, I got fit pretty quick. And mate, off the, um, off the back of that world cup, obviously you'd done enough to sort of get some attention in, in the UK and, um, did London Scottish sort of happen pretty quickly with the medical joker stuff or you had to sort yeah. of sit, sit on your heels a little bit? A little bit sitting on my heels. Um, a little bit. I went back to Oz. I can't remember the exact time frames of it, but I would have spent maybe a month, maybe a month and a half sort of waiting. Um, I was on holidays with my missus, actually. We'd had this holiday booked for after the World Cup. Uh, we were in the Cook Islands when the call came through, and the Cook Islands got terrible internet. Yeah. So, like, we were trying Worst to do contracts. To be, yeah, yeah. So, all of a sudden, so I quickly, you know, like, started, you know, getting off the beers and onto, you know, the beach doing some runs and stuff just to make sure I turned up in reasonable nick again. And, yeah, went there. Um And it was good. Like, the championship was – I didn't really know what to expect when I got there. Um, I'm, you, you know, you, I heard you got talked to Grayson, uh, yesterday yeah. or the other, the other day, um, about the championship and, you know, it is, it's a different beast. It's not well-funded really. Like the teams, there's so many good players, but there's not really the support around it. So that was a bit of a, an eye opener. But for me, I was just, I was so happy to be there because, you know, this is what I'd wanted to do was play professional rugby and yeah, it wasn't glamorous. You know, we had a, we had a changing tire. We didn't have a changing room before training. We had a, you know, tractor tire on the grass and you get changed at the tractor tire. And if it was raining, then you kind of roll the tire underneath a little bit of an awning. Um, but, you know, it was good. It was good for me. And I really enjoyed the rugby and pretty much it was actually my Canada stuff that got me noticed by Newcastle. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, once I basically ended up and took the plunge and got to the UK, I think that just made their decision a lot easier. And Dean Richards has a bit of a, uh, let's say a habit of taking a punt on guys like in the championship. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's actually really smart of him because, you know, he can get them for cheaper than, you know, what you'd get a fully fledged, you know, international with premiership experience. You get you probably about half the price and all you need is one of those guys to work out every year. And you look like, a you know, like a genius really, because you just unearth these, these guys and give them a chance and they're grateful and they go hard and, you know, they go well most of the time. And, and, and based off what you've just told me about the tyre, they're pretty excited to jump at the opportunity and run with it. Given the Absolutely. So. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Like the, the funding and the sort of the resources of a premiership club is just by f like just completely different ballpark. And, and that's why I think they talk a lot about ring fencing because it's, it's pretty obvious every year you know the yeah. one team that goes down just usually just dominates everyone for the whole year and then goes straight back up and then it's just a bit of a repeat cycle so there's and i know people ask the question what's the point of having this cycle like why do we just send a team down to just demolish everyone um and i guess that's a question for smarter guys than us but yeah let's yeah, let's leave that uh, one it's a little bit of a yeah Hey, um, how many of how many of the other Canadian Test players were um, running around the UK when you were there, and like, were you able to stay in touch, and and was that sort of helpful for when the Test games came around? Yeah, absolutely. So there was actually quite a few back uh, when I when I was there. We had uh, DTH Van der Merwe. He was at Glasgow, then at Scarlets. Tyler was at Ospreys. Tyler Ardron. And Hassler, Jeff Hassler was there too. There was a guy, Matt, uh, sorry, Brett Bukaboom, who was at Cornish Pirates. Kieran Hearn was at Irish. 
um, Shane O'Leary came over to Nottingham. I can't remember what year that was, but there was a good group. There was a good group. I've probably forgotten someone, and I'm, I'm sorry for that. But yeah, oh, Jake Ilnicki, he was at the Falcons with me for a year. Um, so that was a good group, and we did. We always we'd hang out as much as possible. Obviously, you know, you have match schedules; it's pretty tough. But I was living in Newcastle, which is a bit of a party town. So usually, guys would get up there for a stag do at some point while I was there, and then we'd you know spend a day here or there, uh, hanging out, which was always good fun. On on the couch, maybe one or two nights. Oh yeah, just well, if you made it back there, yeah. it was uh, some big nights in Newcastle. It's a great, it's a great nightlife. You know, as you, I'm sure you've seen Geordie Shore, but. Yeah. That that's obviously an exaggeration, but it's not too far. <laughs> you can find that if you want there. Fair enough, mate. It sounds like you could have been running Canadian test camps in the UK by the we, amount of players. We did, were. we did. To be honest, um, at some times I can't remember which tours it was, but we would sometimes have our pre-tour camp in London, um, just because it was cheaper to fly the every, you know, the few guys who are based in Canada to London rather than flying all of us over to Canada. So. That did happen once or twice, and we train at the Harlequins at the Harlequins uh, grounds down at the Surrey Surrey yeah. University. There, um, great facilities they've got. So yeah, no, we did sometimes, and then yeah, November tours would usually be based based in Europe for us anyway. So it wasn't too far to travel for those boys who were based there. Fair enough. And at that stage, you what say sixty to seventy percent of the Canadian squad were playing professionally. Um, in some yeah, I'm trying to think how many that would be. What? Yeah, definitely. I'd say like of the starting team anyway, if you think of the starting 15, most of them were playing in England or France. Yeah. And just, or well, not England, sorry, the UK, like, you know, obviously Scotland and, uh, and Wales as well. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the, but that's as you know, that's that sort of makeup of that's really shifted recently. Yeah. Uh, with the sort of the MLR sort of coming on and obviously it's just, the, the foreign player quotas getting squeezed in Europe, you know, the GIF in France, the EQP in England and all that, like it's getting harder and harder for Canadians to compete for, for, for spots unless you are really like, unless you can sort of really prove yourself that you're going to walk into the starting team, you've, your chances are pretty slim these days. Yeah. I'm curious to know, like in current years, obviously with MLR starting, um, like, have you seen or, or heard many of the guys sort of more inclined to stay in America and play professionally there as opposed to chasing, like, championship opportunities in the UK? Definitely. Absolutely. Um, it, I think anyone who could get a top-tier gig would take it um, yeah. without a shadow of doubt. And Prodi 2, to be fair, Prodi 2 is, is yeah. the clubs that, well, I can't speak for every club, but I know most of the clubs are quite well-funded. You know, their budgets, actually, their total budgets are bigger than some premiership clubs, um, just not on wages all the time. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, in terms of there are a lot of guys, like I've talked to a lot of guys, um, you know, I won't name names, but they've, you know, they've been in the championship or they've been in the national one and they've had the opportunity to go back there. But it's like, well, the rugby may be better or it may be like more technically more technical, yeah. I should say, like, you know, the set piece and that kind of thing is a bit more influenced. The refereeing is maybe a bit better, um, coaching maybe. Uh, but why would I go live in some sort of average small town in the UK with crap weather playing 35 games a year in winter when I could live in San Diego, uh, you know, Toronto, Seattle, uh, Atlanta, New York, you know, all these places. There's not really many 
bad places where the teams are based, are they? So um, I think that that sort of lifestyle choice, and obviously then you've seen the quality of the MLR getting better and better all the time. It's it's brilliant for, for Canadians and for Americans because it gives you a proper option uh, close to home. And hopefully we can keep some players in the game who would have otherwise just said, ah, oh, you know what? time to get on time to get a real job and get on with life mate 100 i um, and it's certainly reflecting in um the american national team's performances over the last couple of years as well i'd say definitely De- definitely we just need it now to start translating into the canadian team and we'll be laughing exactly you uh what the u.s have had the edge on you boys the last couple of runs haven't they as painful it is for me to say they have they yeah. have indeed um you know they yeah i'd, I'd say it's yeah, just a lot of it is to do with the amount of players that they have playing um, good rugby week in, week out. They've obviously got some key players in influential positions. You know, Joel Tofetti um, has been unbelievable for them at hooker. AJ McGinty has been unbelievable for them at 10. Yeah. And these these kind of key positions, you know, they've had Nick Savetta as a good line-out operator running their line-out. Um, you know, obviously they've got oh, tons of good players, you can name them. But like these guys and for us, I feel like, the thing for that Canada has been lacking is depth. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd say that was more, the most obvious example of that was in our qualifying game against, uh, against the U S that we played one game in Hamilton. Then we flew down San Diego and played a week later, Canada played the same 15 for 80 minutes, basically barring injuries. Um, and the Americans at about 50 minutes basically switched everyone. Yeah. And then come that game, uh, San Diego, it was a to and fro game. But again, same thing. At about 50 minutes, they ring the changes. We're going 80. Now we're backing up for another 80, most of the most of the guys. And they run away with the game in the last 20 minutes. Um, it's, you know, fatigue. The, the, the strength of their depth has improved massively um, compared to ours. And I'm really hopeful that that will improve for us. But, you know, They've at the moment they've got more better players than we do, and we've got some unbelievable players. And we've got lots of prospects, and I'm really excited about the future. But at this point in time, they have the edge for sure. So, where do you think that disconnect sort of been lost at the moment? Um, guys are like losing interest earlier, or just yeah, lack of the I opportunities. Think, I think I think it's probably a little bit of all of those things. You know, it's it's been for in 15s rugby in Canada, it's been quite hard to develop, particularly as a type five forward. Um, they basically got rid of all the funding for um, like academies. The whole time I was sort of coming through, there wasn't really you couldn't be a nationally you know carded, which is what they call like the national training center for the type five. You had to be able to play sevens because the Olympic funding dictated that okay um and then so that obviously was a hindrance but then america would have had the same problem um but then just having that pro rugby then the mlr where they have so many more players playing um you know it does you know it's just a numbers game i think you you have more guys playing they're training full time they're even though they're not getting paid great money they're getting paid to train and play they're getting stronger even if the coaching is not as good as it could be they've still got a rugby ball in their hands and they're getting better. And then sure enough, you know, yeah. some of those guys really step up um, and become like, you know, top line international players who could probably make almost any international team. Uh, and, you know, we, we've got some of those guys coming through. There are some great young players, but we have one team in the MLR. Yeah, and and there's, have, there's, you know, there's obviously rumors of a West Coast 
Canadian team coming on board in the next year or two as well, which would obviously help. I'd love to see it. Yeah. I'd love to see it. Hopefully. Ch- chance chance of you maybe later on in the career coming back for Well, a lot of that is gonna be determined by my by my partner. Yeah. Um I I'd love to. I love Canada and I'd love to go live there. But she has been uh, you know, she's coming over here and sacrificing quite a lot for, for my benefit. So um Hopefully I can swing it that way, but you know, there's a, there'll be a bit of give and take. That's for sure. You know, can't, can't have it all my own way forever. I've kind of had it all my own way for the last sort of five years. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully though, I'd love to. Matt, you've done a very good job. Obviously when she listens to this, you've, you've ticked <laughs> yeah. the boxes. Well done. Uh, no, exactly. Got to, got to look after, uh, you know, got to get the, make sure you get the brownie points in. Yeah. Mate, um, 2018, uh, sorry, last year's World Cup, 2019. How was um, preparations and everything like that for the Canadian boys going into it and then just the experience itself in Japan? Yeah, um, the preparations, yeah, they were interesting. We were in the middle of like a budget crisis with Rugby Canada. So it was definitely not the same as the 2015 preparation. Yeah. That's probably about the nicest way to put it. Before the 2015 World Cup, we had... I can't exactly remember, but I'm going to say it was almost a month of training camp where we were at um, the Shawnigan Lake School, which has got amazing facilities on Vancouver Island, north of Victoria. Uh, and we we trained, they put us up, or I'm sure we, they, Rogue Canada must have paid something, but we they put us up, we trained, they had a series of cuts. Everyone who was in contention was there pretty much from day one, except for a couple guys with injuries. Everyone was like battling it out for spots. We had internal games. This time you know, due to, you know, funding things and whatever, we basically had an optional camp for two weeks before the first game. And then we got together like one week before the first game. And so it was just... Before we go any further, were the players... uh, Before the... Were the players... the first um, game of the PNC, yeah. Were the players told by Rugby Canada as to why these budget cuts took place or kind of left in the dark Um, a little bit? No, no, the, the Rugby Canada was pretty transparent about like what was going on and sort of what was happening. And they were sort of letting us know and, you know, trying to come up with solutions for everyone. But I guess at the end of the day, they couldn't afford to put on a month long training camp. And, you know, when part of our like collective agreement was we got we get paid like a small stipend per day that we're in a training camp. Yeah. So but if it's an optional training camp, it's not a training camp. So then they don't have to pay us, you know. And like I say, we're not talking a lot of money here, but this is also guys' careers. So people will say, oh, you know, it's Canada and it's rugby. Why should you expect to get paid? It's like, well, if you want to compete, you got to pay players. Like that's just the, you know, if you, if you want to be amateur, then you can be amateur and you will perform like amateurs. Um, So yeah, there was these things going on. um, And, you know, to be fair, the answer, like that they've been, there's been redundancies at rugby Canada sort of ongoing and it's, that's just COVID as well. Yeah. Like it's the sports industry, it's COVID, it's everything. So this is not like nothing is by any ways solved, but you know, we had an optional camp The the squad didn't really assemble till a week before the first Pacific nations cup game, which was against the U S and Denver. And, you know, talking to some of my mates who play for the American team, they, you know, they had pretty good camps up in the altitude training center and stuff. And, you know, they were far better prepared and, you know, they performed better. And obviously they carried, they went through the Pacific nations, played really well, and they put on some good performances at the world cup, although I'm sure they would have preferred to get some different results. Mate, um, with the, that optional training stuff, like 
obviously don't answer the question if you don't feel comfortable, but like it's safe to say that guys, like I'm sure there must have been players in the Canadian squad around that optional training camp that opted out just based on, you know, either part-time players had to stay in their careers um, or just couldn't afford to take the time off. Yeah, that definitely happened. And there were guys who had professional contracts and opted and, you know, opted to stay at their clubs and do preseason there and then didn't make the squad. And, you know, I guess you can draw conclusions as you want. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I remember, yeah, there, there are definitely some players and I'm sure Canadian rugby fans will be able to identify who those are, who, you know, in, in a lot of guys' opinions should have been in the squad. Um, but, you know, they didn't, they didn't come. They didn't, I guess, make the sacrifice and that was held well, was it a sacrifice or, you know, it's optional. So yeah. is it optional or is it optional? Um, and that was sort of, I guess, held against them. But again, you'd have to probably ask the, you know, that's obviously the coaching committee, the selection committee, all that. It's not just, uh, I'm sure there's multiple things at play there, which I'm not party to. And I won't pretend to know all the answers, but uh, yeah, that definitely did happen. That guys stayed away and they didn't get picked. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's yeah. Very interesting yeah. to hear. Um, Moving into the World Cup then, like, how was your time in Japan anyway? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I loved it. Um, it was actually a really interesting time for me because I uh, I got landed on in a lineup. So I spent about two weeks in Japanese hospital right before the, you know, right before the first game. So I was having a great time, loving the culture, loving how different it was, and then got to see a whole different side of the culture, the healthcare system. Yeah. So I, yeah, so that was really interesting. Um, so that kind of put a real, like, a dampener on on the thing for me because especially I'd, I'd been coming at it from a very different perspective so I was like a leader in the team now I was you know um, the first choice in my position I, I would say that's no one would really argue with me if I said that um, for this World Cup whereas last time I was obviously just trying to fight tooth and nail for any game time I could scratch uh, so yeah I was really looking forward to it and then I just yeah ended up you know getting a wrench thrown in there and uh yeah, so it was good. Um, we played, obviously, I missed the Italy game, uh, and that was a disappointing game for the squad. But again, like the cities and the hosts were amazing. And then we played, you know, the the, the reigning world champions and then the next world, the future world champions, back-to-back, um, -back, which is obviously brutal. Um, amazing experience, though. But, uh, yeah, obviously, obviously tough games. And then uh, we had our last game cancelled because of the typhoon, which was devastating because, you know, um, Canada has a, a strong history of winning games at the World Cup. I think la the last World Cup was the only time where we where we'd lost every game, um, and so we were really going like, right, we got to come on Namibia. This is a good opportunity. This is we're fairly evenly matched on the world rankings. Like, this is a great opportunity to try and to get a win. And then um, it was cancelled, and that was a real, real letdown. Not just for not just for the boys, but obviously for the rugby community in Canada, who'd been sort of frothing for a win because we'd been you know underperforming as a team, I'd say, for quite some time, uh, and you know we'd been losing. We'd been playing higher ranked opposition mostly. You know, um, we were ranked around twenty second, twenty third, if I remember correctly, and we'd play games against you know Samoa, Fiji, the U.S., who all kind of ranked around the, you know the ten to fifteen. So yeah. It was like, right, we're playing a team who's, according to rankings, on our level. Like, let's go. Like, this is exciting. And then nothing. There, um, <laughs> Massive there, letdown. There must have been some, like, honest conversations within 
um, Rugby Canada coaches, players after that experience in terms of like getting Canada back on track, surely? Um, yeah, yeah. They, they, I mean, they they do a survey every time, um, and I'm and I'm not sure exactly what's the result of it. I don't know. Um, yeah. So our coach is, you know, he signed on for I think a few more years, and you know, he's in a he's in a tough position because as we've sort of mentioned with the budget cuts, he basically it's all lumped on him. Really, yeah. he's the the you know the forwards coach. You know, if if he doesn't find someone to basically come and help out for free. He's the forwards coach, backs coach, defense coach, attack coach, lineout coach. You know, <laughs> it's it, it's a crazy. tough position, and he and he does and he does well to sort of get his mates. You know, he's he's obviously got some good connections around from his ex- previous experiences, and he gets guys to come help. And you know, we had a pretty good crew at the World Cup with Richard Wigglesworth, Boris uh, Stankovic, who was a Leicester Tiger scrum coach. Richard Wigglesworth, obviously, like a legendary number nine in the UK, um, and. Um, the Griff, who's a, one of his mates from Wales, who's a he's a good sort of attacking and backs coach. So we, we get these guys to come help out, but then it's not really consistent. You know, you don't get a consistent voice, a consistent pattern because, you know, obviously Kingsley has his ideas, but then he has to give his coaches some reign to do what they want. Otherwise, what's the point of having them? And so it's kind of like hard to get a sort of nailed down pattern. And it's definitely not an enviable position that he's in. Um, obviously, he gets to live in Canada instead of Wales, so that's obviously brilliant. Yeah. Uh, but you know, yeah, it's a it's a tough job that he's in for. So, mate, in your opinion, then, like, what do you think are some like simple changes or some ideas that Rugby Canada could maybe implement, or you'd like to see from a player's perspective to bring things back to where they used to be when when Canada was beating the US on a consistent basis and getting World Cup wins. <laughs> Yeah, it's tough because like at the end of the day, you can say anything that you want to change, but it comes down to money, really. Yeah. Is it possible to do it? Yeah, like it'd be awesome if we could have, you know, two or three teams in Canada professionally. But will that happen? Money, probably not. If not, then can we get like some training camps for the young guys really pushing development? Uh, can we get development officers out there like helping to upskill the rugby community? It would be great. Can you afford it? Probably not. Um, and that's really where it comes down to is that, you know, we need to try and basically sort out our funding, sort out what we can do, and then try and be as efficient as possible in sort of having a balanced approach. Because obviously, you know, I, and I, I'm really good friends with a lot of the sevens guys and they know my opinion on this, but um, like, I don't mind saying it, that I think that the sevens and the focus on sevens in the Olympics has really brought down the 15s game in Canada, particularly among the men, because you, we've got a, like an overabundance of outside centers and wingers and, and, you know, tens and stuff who are great players, but they're great players at sevens. Cause that's what they do. Cause that's where the money is. And then when they come to 15, it's a different game. As you know, like the pre- the time and space is not there. You know, how often do you see a blitz defense in a sevens game? Like never. Whereas, yeah. you know, teams bring line speed, they put heat on you. It's a completely different game. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where I'd like to see is just to have a bit more of an all-rounded development. Sure, sevens is a great pathway and it's in the Olympics and it gets attention. So let's obviously leverage some that. funding there, but let's not put all our eggs in one basket. Yeah. And I mean, just based off what you're telling me, like younger Canadian players now are focusing on trying to get a gold medal at the Olympics with Canada as opposed to going to a World Cup with their 15 squad. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, no one can blame them for that. Like, yeah. so if I could play sevens and go to the Olympics and get a gold medal, I'd definitely do it as well. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of guys with my body shape and front rowers body shapes who that's not really something you're going to do, but you know, having a good tight five is important. And you, and those guys like could do like some of those, some of those backs who play in the sevens team, they're great 15s players as well. Like one, the the one most obvious one that jumps to my mind is Connor Braid. Like he's yeah. unreal as a good hard running 12. And he's also a very good sevens player, but like you give them time to switch, you know, like he doesn't have to play seven, seven, sevens for three years and right at the last minute before world cup right now, come play 15s. Like, you know, if you're a sevens player, okay, be a sevens player and allocate yourself for a certain amount of time. And then, but then at the same time, they need some guys who are going to go down that 15s pathway. And sure, may, maybe the the zippy backs will be over there, and it'll be the more the purists who head off to the UK or play MLR who want to play actual 15s rugby um, for for most of the time. But then after the Olympics, I'd love to see those guys, you know, like Nate Nate Hiriyama. Obviously, maybe not because he's getting a little bit older now. But like you know, those kind of guys, I'd like to say, right, the Olympics has happened now. Now let's go 15s for the next three years. Like let's put, like, we've done this one. Now let's do the other one. And it would be great to see them that sort of uh, put in the time and have a red hook crack that way. Is is there a concern that that next tier of players coming through just isn't there based on their focus on sevens? No, I, I wouldn't say that because I know that um, Cudmore, um, he's over on the island now running the uh, National Academy. And so they do. So this is one thing they've, they've managed to get it together. And, you know, by hook or by crook, I don't know how they did it, but they've got the money for uh, for an academy, basically. They have a That's bunch right. of guys, young guys, and it's, yeah, it's brilliant. And it's what we need to happen. So there, I know there are guys coming through. Um, but those guys will be able to play both. Like, I know, I know that they can, but I know that this – academy is mainly focused on 15s like those guys play in the club comp uh, the like the vancouver and vancouver island club comp so they actually get some games and it's a great initiative like it's really good and and so i can't say specifically what depth there is coming through because I, I don't know but uh, i know that they're working on it at least and like they're it, that those guys because canada's got athletes like you just look at our performance in other sports you know particularly winter sports but like hockey there's Canadian football. There's all sorts of other sports. There's athletes in the country. You just got to find them. And you just got to try and get them to play rugby. And most of them do play rugby at some point, um, maybe for a little while in high school as like a high school sport. But now you got to keep them and not let them, you know, obviously if you can make 10 million a year playing ice hockey, you'll probably do that. But like, if you don't, then come play rugby. Let's go, you know, try and pick up some of these guys. Definitely, mate. And obviously, you know, for the sake of American rugby in general, like, Canada's got to do well for everyone else too as well just to keep that that talent pool maintained. So fingers crossed they can get it right in the next couple Absolutely. of years. Absolutely. Mate, um, big thing I want to talk to you about um, on the podcast as well, away from rugby, is just like, mate, it's, it's certainly been a grind for you to get to where you are now and um, well-deserved. But there's, there was some times where maybe rugby wasn't the main focus and you had to work on other stuff. Like tell us, tell us about life away from rugby. And um, obviously you've, got your cpa accountant degree and did you need all of that stuff like yeah how important was that for you yeah it was, it was really important and um it's sort of more important i realize how important it is now more than i probably did at the time because at the time all i wanted to do was be a rugby player 
but I wasn't being a rugby player at the time. You know, I was playing club footy and, you know, you train Tuesdays, Thursdays, maybe have a video session on Monday um, and play on Saturday. But what are you going to do for the rest of the time? You know, you get paid to you maybe a couple hundred, couple hundred bucks in a brown paper bag per week. You know, like it's nothing. Um, it's not going to pay your bills. So, yeah, I did accounting at uni, um, you know, had got into a good program at UTS. So I did it and I was working, you know, part of work experience as part of that course, the Bachelor of Accounting, they call it. Um, and yeah, so I was doing that, working, studying. Then eventually I graduated uni. So, you know, but rugby still like I, I'd been on the cusp with the Waratahs, but, you know, not quite made it. And then I, you know, broke my ankle. And so, right, well, Good thing I have a job then because uh, rugby's not going to pay the bills while I have a broken ankle. Yeah. So it was just, so it was working away, working away. And, um, you know, then eventually, you know, I, I had some really good employers. Like I worked at a company called Striker who makes like, ironically, there's a good chance I'll end up with some Striker in my body at some point because they make medical implants like plates and screws and amongst other funny. things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but then they were really supportive of like letting me go off to Canada for a couple months at a time to sort of do the provincial thing. But, you know, I get, I get to where I am now and, you know, in England, you know, I, I feel like when I was in New Zealand, most of the team was under 33, I'd say. Yeah. And Australia about the same. Whereas in England, there's quite a few guys who play into their late thirties, 37, 36. And there was a couple guys who I was really good friends with. But they'd been they'd been really successful rugby players. They'd played basically since they came out of school. They'd made a ton of money, but they've obviously but then they've been spending up to that you know that lifestyle that they're used to. And then they're right, careers are coming to an end, and they're just literally sitting there going, "Oh shit! Like, what now? Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to retire at the end of this year. Maybe next year if I get a contract extension." And the stress on some of these guys was unbelievable. And like. I remember chatting with some of them and, you know, they'd basically be saying like, what, like, what am I going to do? Like, I, you know, I've got a kid, you know, some of them, you know, had uh, expensive ex-wives. And so that's again, half your money. Um, and it's like, what, what am I going to do? And the stress and, and thankfully those guys have all, you know, ended up doing some further study and retrain. But like one guy I remember was talking literally about becoming a taxi driver. Like maybe I'll drive a taxi. That's crazy. And and it's just like, it is it's it's mental and i know the rpa you know they they try and do some work around that for sure um but you know a lot of the time guys um one guy one guy said to me um he's like well you know i'm not really i was never great at studying and i can't focus on rugby and give it all my effort and study at the same time like i've tried it and i can't do it i study poorly and then i play poorly and rugby's paying my bills so rugby is what gets the what gets the focus and that's a fair enough attitude like you know i can understand why you'd say that but then i was guess i was kind of fortunate in that the way that you know i I sort of got knocked down at almost every stage on my way through you know i almost made the australian under 20s what what life could have been like if i made the australian under 20s um but then you know they the guy tells me oh you're not big enough uh we don't think you're big enough and strong enough to compete at this level so you know see you later and so that you know led me to doing study whereas maybe a lot of those under 20s guys get picked up super rugby straight away so what life could have been like but then i'm quite thankful in 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 the sense that now i know that you know i'm not going to have to drive a taxi like yeah i've got a have got a backup plan and it's something that you know i i encourage a lot of the young boys you know if if they if they ask me and some some of them do 
some of them I don't talk too much for some of them, but some of them be like, all right, yeah, and I'd be like, make sure you just get something sorted, whatever it is, like anything, even if it's not necessarily like accounting. Like, I didn't really want to be an accountant. Who who grows up dreaming of being an accountant? Like, it's just something I kind of fell into. It was actually not as bad as what I thought. Um, it was, you know, not as dry. Some of it is. Don't get me wrong, but and now I'm thankful that I'll have that option when you know if I if I have a catastrophic injury tomorrow, I'll be able, I'll be okay. And I know there's some players who are not like that, and it, and that is stressful. And we, you know, there's a lot of more sort of emphasis on mental health now, and I know that that is a big, big stressor for a lot of guys. Mate, I'm just um, just spitballing here, but there's there's probably a market for you at um, in the rugby world at the moment to be a bit of a financial manager when the time comes to it to a lot of these rugby players, so that they're avoiding this situation. Well, yeah, like to be fair. It could be, could be a good option, but like, I know I've talked to some guys, you know, like even guys have just been sort of spitballing business ideas around the club. And I'd be like, right, well, you know, you've come to the right place. Like I can, I can, I haven't started a business, but I know these are things that you need to think about. Like what's your business structure? You know, how are you going to get your money? X, Y, Z, like, you know, have you considered these factors, you know, and they go, Oh no, I didn't really think of that. Um, And I was like, Oh, well, you know, these are, there is like it is a useful skill to have. So again, any of the young footy players out there, if you've got no idea what to do, take an accounting course. It might not be the most exciting thing, but it's useful. Evan Olmstead Consultancy, right there. Yeah, let's gentlemen. do it. <laughs> <laughs> How good, mate. Um, I, I do want to touch on it quickly because I think it's been a massive like focus in your career so far. But like going back to the Southern Hemisphere with the um. Auckland ITM team, uh, might attend team, and then Blues Joker. Like that must have been an incredible experience to then go and play that style of rugby. It was absolutely unbelievable. And uh, one of my Parramatta coaches, Glenn Christini, he told me when I was about 21 to head to go to New Zealand. You know, go to New Zealand. Your style of play is valued there. Um, he's like, I don't really think you'll crack it in Australia because you know of the this that and the other. But he says, you know, in New Zealand, I think you do well and. Obviously, I had a girlfriend at the time. I had a job. I was studying. You know, it just was like too difficult to really pack up my whole life when I really didn't know anything about New Zealand in terms of like, well, where would I go? What would I do? What team? I like really didn't know. But once I got there, it was unbelievable. I'd been playing sort of the English style, which you know, again, I actually I like the English rugby. I think it's really it's exciting in a, its own way. You know, the the struggle, the malls, spoken the like a true tight five forward, mate. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And uh, well, I'm staying with some Kiwis at the moment while um, some stuff with my house gets sorted. And uh, you know, we watch Premiership highlights, and there's four malls, and they're like how four more tries like that is that's so boring i was like yeah it's not boring like it's the struggle of it you know there's the the defense and the attack and you gotta win anyway um but yeah going to auckland completely different just like their emphasis on moving the ball and keeping the ball alive and support lines and just you know it was all it was really like um yeah like i'd say like high risk high reward but then you practice it you practice the high risk stuff so then it doesn't become as high risk because you're used to it you expect offloads you're ready for people to throw offloads um and you know you could throw some pretty speculative you know behind the back no looking passes but everyone is kind of ready for you to do that and so it works more often than it doesn't and it was really really interesting and just it was completely different like just the yeah the attitude there's no relegation well there, there is a relegation in the mitre 10 but it's not as sort of catastrophic financially as what like a premiership relegation is yeah. so 
you know, the, the, the high risk, high reward is more acceptable. And the uh, X Factor players that were in that squad as well. Like, absolutely. Yeah. That was my, my next point. You know, some of these guys, unbelievable players who I'd sort of been watching on TV and, you know, it was really awesome to like learn, learn off them. But then, you no, know, they'd ask me stuff about like, about mauling, about, you know, scrummaging as a lock and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it was just, yeah, it was really good. And Evan's was, eyes light up. All right, boys. Let me sit you down here. We'll talk malls. We're going to do mall defense today, boys. No, don't worry. We're not going to do it. No live malls. No live malls. No, we don't need any of those. We're just going to do the... (laughs) Get your head in the right place. Uh, But no, it was was brilliant. It was really good. And it was just so much fun. Like, you know, because rugby had been... I wouldn't say it becoming a grind because I was really enjoying it in the UK too. And we were doing really well. We made the premiership semifinals. Um... But, you know, it was definitely a sort of a more one dimensional style as opposed to, yeah, this is just like what what is going on here? It's madness and it's exciting to play and it's exciting to watch as well, I think. Mate, huge. Um, Again, so much to talk about here, but where you are now with um, Beirut in the French competition, like we touched on it earlier, but it's just a completely different beast in itself. And speaking to other players that have gone over to play in France, whether it be Prodi 2 or... Um, top 14 like it's it's an, yeah as I said a different kettle of fish altogether so just talk us about that experience and sort of like a day-to-day sort of environment around rugby in France yeah it's um, I'm really fortunate at Biarritz because most people can speak English whereas I know that at a lot of clubs that's not the case so in terms of a day-to-day existence it's really it's a lot easier than it otherwise could be um, but no, we, you know, we do a lot of the same stuff um, as, as you know, the UK, New Zealand. But I just say like their emphasis is a bit different, like the sort of the emphasis on SNC and that sort of thing. It's it's just different in France. Um, you know, the, you know, in England, they're obsessed with skin folds, absolutely obsessed with it. In France, not so much. It's more like, all right, you know, if you're too heavy, obviously lose weight. But as long as you play well, you know, you you play well, you kind of do you, you know. Um, and I, it's really refreshing because, you know, I, I'd say like there's a lot less sort of pressure on the players in that respect to conform to a perfect body image because, you know, I don't think I've had a six pack maybe since I was 12 years old. Like it's just not in my it's not in my family. No one has six packs. No Olmsteads have six packs. It doesn't exist. Um, and so for and, and England, I was always fighting that. I was, you know, having to be real tight on my diet all the time here. It's like, OK, look, you got a little bit of a belly. But you're playing well. Your fit, your fitness scores are good, so don't worry about it. Like we don't want you to obsess about diet. Just be healthy, play well, um, and yeah, it's really good. Uh, you know, the rugby is it's fun because it has that combination of the joué and the super physical, um, you know, set piece elements that we have. And and our team has a really good mix. We've obviously had some really good signings this year. You know, our director of rugby and president have obviously put together a great squad, and we're obviously looking to go up. Um, you know, we, there's Definitely. no two bones about it with the squad we have. Like if our goal wasn't to go up, there'd be something wrong with us. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's really exciting. And and obviously the the, the rugby sort of it's a rugby town. Biarritz yeah. is a rugby town and Bayonne, which is like I don't know if you've been, but it's literally five minutes up the road is a rugby town as well. The fans hate each other and you'll get chirped in the street by little kids. If you're in Bayonne, little kids will chirp you because they know you're a Biarritz player. How good is that? And, and um, a guy I played at London Scottish 
uh, with has a you know Bayon sponsor car, so his you know car's got a Bayon logo on it, and he couldn't park it anywhere in Biarritz because kept getting keyed. So oh like, my God. it's just like, it's madness. And, you know, you'll be, you'll be riding along on your, on your scooter because it's, you know, no one drives a car in this city unless you absolutely have to. And like the old boys will be sitting there, you know, playing petanque or whatever, this French sort of lawn bowls type game. And they'll see you drive past and just start waving at you. It's, it's unbelievable because, you know, it's just, it's so foreign to me as a, you know, in Newcastle, it's a football town, you know, Newcastle United, Alan Shearer, that's what people live and breathe for. Whereas here it's the rugby. And so you get really good crowds. Even in Pro D2, we were getting good crowds. One of the best crowds we ever had was on the worst day ever. It had been raining for about 30 days straight. The field was underwater and it was almost a sellout. And it was a TV game. I was sitting there going, why, why are you people here watching the game like live? I'd be watching this on TV. It's miserable and freezing. But yeah, it's just up. the support. Yeah, exactly. And especially when you're doing well, like it's, especially when you're doing well, you get the big crowds and obviously the crowds are limited now because of COVID, but it's great that we can still have some crowds and that we can play again because that's the main thing. That's what we want to do. 100%. And just on top of that as well, like the lifestyle um, in that part of the world is, must be pretty amazing as well. It is. It is very good. There's not two ways to beat around the bush on that. It is unbelievable. Yeah. This part of France is great. And when I was sort of, when the contract offer was in front of me for the first time, I was with the Canadian team and I was like asking a couple of the French, the guys who played in France, you know, like, what do you think? Is this, a, is this a good deal? Like, is this a good team? What, what am I getting myself into? And they're like, you know, yeah, it's a good team. It, it has had some tough times, but it's the best place in France. And if you don't go there now, like I'm going to take the deal. I'm <laughs> going to punch you and take this contract and write my name on it. Like, can you just take it? It's an unbelievable place to go. And uh, yeah, so obviously once I got here, it was, it rained for the first month and I was kind of, of to did. my agent like, uh, yeah. And they said, no, just, you just wait till summer. And it has obviously been a curtailed summer because of the COVID. Yeah. Uh, but, still just like the beaches the you know the cafe culture just everything like that and obviously the nightlife is obviously heavily restricted but even just like you know to have a bar to have a beer with your mates like in, in it's warm it's like aussie basically aussie in summer you know singlets shorts you know just having a beer in it in the sun it's good stuff and, and as you said there's there's enough expat presence or english speaking people there to be able to like feel comfortable and relaxed in that environment as well yeah yeah like you know especially if you go into the city center itself i'd say like every shopkeeper probably and bartender waiter can speak english obviously i'm trying my best to learn french it's very difficult language or you yeah, pay attention in school kids because it yeah. could come in handy but uh it's yeah it's very difficult like just the nuances of you know the gender of every every object has a gender it's quite hard but um nah you can get by with like a bit of a bit of bad french and a bit of english and you can get by pretty much in all situations which is which is really fortunate because i had mates in other towns and they just like yep i had to be fluent in french within six months or i was gonna start getting hungry like yeah exactly and, and the good mm. thing is the clubs help you enough with that stuff or, or push you into situations to, to force you to do it. So it's absolutely it's yeah. good. Mate, um, definitely coming towards the end of the, the podcast here, but um, there's a few stories of yours for, from your career that I want to definitely touch on. One is leaving head coach off the bus. Uh, oh, yes. From, yep. from Dublin. And then the other one is doing a uh, 
game review after a full hour of boozy bus trip. So yeah, yeah. Oh well, the the first one was uh, was with the Canadian team. We won't say the name of the coach, but obviously the players know the name of the coach. And um, you know, we'd had a training camp in Ireland, like you sort of mentioned before. Sometimes we do our camps in Europe. Yeah. Uh, we were about to play Ireland, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks and went to Dublin. You know, we had our per diem, you know, where when you don't get your food at the hotel, they give you like 50 bucks for dinner or something. And so the boy's like, right, you know, have a good, have a good night. And he's like, right, have some beers, do what you want, have a good dinner. Bus leaves at 10 p.m. If you're not on the bus, bus is leaving without you. Same old story. So sure, sure enough. The only guy not on the bus when it comes 10 p.m. is the guy who made the rule. And we could see him running down the street. Like he he rounds the corner. The bus driver, obviously, we're telling him, go, go, go. Everyone's like, go, go, go. It's 10, you know, time's up. Let's go. Um, and, and the bus driver's in two minds. Oh, should I? Should I? Uh, and we're like, no, nah, do it, do it, do it. And then eventually, doors shuts, bus goes. Coach is literally running after the bus. And uh, he gave us all shit the next day because it apparently cost him like, you know, 60, 70 euros to get a taxi out you to where we were left staying. There. Yeah, he's gone. Yeah. That's it was, uh, so good. Hey, well, the bus is leaving, the bus is leaving. So uh, that, was, that was quite funny. And then, yeah, another team, which uh, we won't say which team specifically, but we had a, we had a preseason game and then we went to camp um straight to camp and so you know pretty good preseason game beers on the bus as often as the case especially when you're going to camp and you know no one has to drive home after a bus ride or anything sure. like that so um yeah beers on the bus about four hours of pretty steady drinking so you know you can imagine the guys were in all sorts of different conditions after that um and then they we got there and they said look we're gonna have a review of this uh this preseason game and we're like oh are you sure I'm like, oh, no, no, it'll be good. So the coaches, they said, everyone, all right, grab a couple of beers. We're going to go to this meeting room. We sat around. Obviously, the the review, as, as the review went longer and longer, it started to get a little bit more and more um, out of control, and then we had to call it. But it was pretty funny to sit there with, you know, your forwards coach and your head coach, you know, beers in hand, you know, making people have, uh, you know, oh, that, you know, you, that you shouldn't have done that, you know. That's three fingers, you know. <laughs> Boys have their skull. Yeah. I feel that goes one of two ways. It either escalates yeah. in a negative way and it kicks off between players no. and coaches, or you just fucking laugh it off. No, it was definitely, Jesus. it was definitely, uh, it was definitely in the positive sense. Uh, it was very good. And, um, you know, for that, that first night of the camp was basically, you know, well, we played the game, so there was nothing to do. So, so we, they just continued and had a good night and then got to work the next day. Um, but, yeah, it was it was all in good spirits and it was absolutely hilarious. I was like, in all my days, I've never seen it and I've never seen it again. So, um, Bloody yeah, hell. really, really funny. Mate, that's that's hilarious. Yeah, I'm sure they learned some things from that one. I feel sure. like that can only happen in rugby, really. Yeah, like, exactly. what other sport could you do that? Exactly. Speaking of which, obviously, two games into the season now, like, um, what's, what's the plan for you guys, obviously, um, moving into the season? Yeah, so we've got a we've got a really good squad. Um, and we've got we've got pretty good depth. Um, you know, obviously there's a few injuries kicking about at the moment. Guys haven't played in six months. It's probably the longest break we've any of us had. And you know, you think you'd come in more fresh, but you really don't. I think you need that rugby conditioning, yeah. almost a sort of week in week out kind of gets you used to it. So um, you know, away games in France are very very difficult to win. Um, 
just you know it's it's i don't know what it is but it's it is very difficult so we've won our home game we lost our first away game um, we're sitting fourth on the ladder because we've got a bonus point. So, you know, it could be it could be worse. Obviously, we want to be first and we want to be first the whole time. Obviously, we're really hoping that nothing impacts the season like it did last year. Yeah. The you know the the COVID cases per day is pretty alarming in France, but um, as far as I can tell, the hospitalizations is quite low still. So let's fingers crossed that everything continues. Just from our selfish perspective, as wanting to play rugby, that it continues. Um, you know basically staying down as low as possible. Um, but yeah, like I think the plan is obviously to to really kick on. We've, you know, just in terms of the complexity of our game plan, I think it's really evolved compared to last year. So that's really like, that's really positive to see. Like, um, you know, our coaches are young coaches as well. They're, so, you know, they're learning the players. We've got like some really good young players. We're all learning. We're all on the, we're all on the journey together. Um, and you know, it's, it's an exciting time to be affiliated with the club and just really hopeful that that good mixture of like youth, um, and experience that we have, as well as, you know, the coaches, the management can, we can all sort of pull together and, um, and get Biritz back to the sort of the former glory. Everyone wants to see it. Uh, Except for Bayon, yeah. they don't want to see it. But you know, <laughs> so good, mate. I honestly, I appreciate your time. Obviously, it's late over there at the moment, so thank you so much. We've just knocked off an hour um, here, which was unreal. We, I feel like I could talk more and more about this stuff. But yeah, as I said, thank you so much for coming on, um, and best of luck for the rest of the season. I will certainly be watching. No, thanks for that. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to have a yarn with you. Hundred percent. It's good. All right, mate. All right. Take care. Catch you later.